All right, we're looking up there. Uh, we've got one line left open. You better grab it quickly, 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Tony and Eric and Carolyn and then you. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, really sir. enjoy your show. Well, you thank you. me so much. Well, that uh, makes me feel good. It's a pleasure to do so. Okay, so I'm getting ready to move, and I've planted 50... I have a small orchard, mm-hmm. 50 fruit trees and pomegranates, and, you know, they're maybe four inches in diameter or less, that kind of thing. Okay. Do you know if I can rent a tree spade to move them so I don't have to start from scratch, or is that... Where is where is your ranch, uh, where is your orchard located, Tony? In Marion. So our soil is sandy loamy, so it won't be any problem digging it out. Sure. But... Um, here's the thing, um, and, and how long has this orchard been established? If they're four or five inches diameter, I'm guessing five, six years old on most of the trees. Yeah, the, the, that's the oldest. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, there are trees that I would say are worth moving and that they're trees that are not worth moving. Um, trees, productive trees that are long lived, such as persimmon and pears, um, I think moving them would be a reasonable thing. And I'll ask you a basic question in just a second. Uh, when you look at a plum tree, that tree is already halfway through its life. Peach tree is the same way. Apricot tree is the same way. And, um, it's, there's more to using a big tree spade, um, than simply renting it. It's there, there's a lot of skill goes into this and, uh, it's really not a do it yourself job, you know, written a tree chipper, written a bobcat, uh, a skilled man or woman, <laughs> a skilled person can certainly quickly learn to operate those things. But, uh, um, a big Vermeer tree, tree spade is a, a whole different game. And um, it, to pay somebody to do it, you're probably looking at several hundred dollars, you know, per tree to move it. And uh, it's it's just a cost-benefit uh, game there. You know how quickly these things grow, and you know that you're basically going to be out of production for two years. And after that, your plums and your peaches are going to you know, kick back in and, uh, uh, and do very well. But, um, it's, and it's not just the tree spade that you would be renting. Uh, do you already have a backhoe? Not a backhoe, but I have a, a hundred horsepower tractor. Yeah. Well, so I didn't know I needed the backhoe. So well, I- you're going to need to dig a hole to put those trees in once you dig them, once you transport them. And, um, how far is it from the old property to the new property? Uh, 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. See, here's the thing is that, um, you know, most of the time when a tree spade is used to move a tree, that tree is dug. And if you can drive a hundred yards and put it back in the ground, no big deal. But it's not simply a matter of digging it out of the ground. Next thing we have to do is uh, ball and burlap. We have to secure that root ball so the root ball doesn't get transfer or it doesn't get damaged in the transfer from point A to point B. And when you count your time, when you count the labor, um, you're we're talking, you know, getting up in a lot of money per tree. 
to dig and move them. And now, in a like you say, in a slow-growing, long-live tree, certainly I'd consider it an, an option for uh, an, or, an Asian persimmon and uh, perhaps for a pear tree. But um, it's just uh, I would have to um, I'd have to look at the you know cost benefit uh, factor. Now, if this were a you know a a commemorative thing, if this was hey dad or granddad or whoever planted these trees, they're part of our family heritage. Um, yeah, then then it's worth whatever it cost. But as far as simply a productive orchard. Um, you're going to spend an awful lot of money per tree to get it from point A to point B. And um, there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful in moving them. So, um, yes, it is possible. <clears throat> yes, I'm sure you could go to United Rental or one of the really big companies that can rent almost anything in the world. In fact, um, you might have to drive to Houston to, you know, get that, that tree spade to bring it to Marion to do this work. But uh, I think real hard about, uh, you know, about the cost and all. And I'd be looking at my new piece of land and saying, man, for the money I would spend to move 20 trees, I could plant 150 new trees plus a fancy irrigation system to take care of maybe even a new well to water them. I'm just not sure that the cost benefit is there. Well, I think I'm agreeing with you, so. Yes, sir. I think I agree with you. Now, on the other hand, um, moving away from your existing place, is it going to turn into a development or is it going to go into the hands of an individual? Well, um, probably an individual. I don't see a developer coming in. Well, raise the price on the property to uh, to accommodate for how much those trees are worth, because you you're selling someone (laughs) a, you know, a very valuable asset on that property. And um and and you're giving up something to leave it behind, uh, which every move in the world involves. So, uh, um, yes, it can be done. Yes, it would be very expensive to do it. Yes, I think you're capable of doing it. If I were in your shoes, would I do it? Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate that advice. So I think I'm going to heed it because you've helped me so much in the others. Well, it's uh, you just <laughs> don't hesitate to call me anytime I can be of help to you. Do I have time for one other question? Yes, sir. Okay. I think my new nickname is Orchid Killer. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I have a greenhouse I put them in, but they just, within days, within a week of bringing them home, and I don't even water them. One or two I'll water, the others I'll leave alone. Okay. Help me out, Bob. Well, an, an, an orchid expert is a person who's killed at least a thousand plants, and I'm an orchid expert, probably several times over. What kind of orchids have you been trying, honey? Pretty. Okay. Um, <laughs> mainly, Sorry. mainly phalaenopsis, mainly grocery store orchids. What is your source of orchids? Um, we got some out of the Seguin Nursery. I can say their name if you don't mind. But, Greengate. Uh, Yes, sir. I'll be there this afternoon buying from some things from them myself. So, yeah, I uh, I know them well and respect them. They're greenhouse full of orchids. Oh, you think you're in a tropical jungle? Yes, greenhouse number one. I know it well. Um, so. What you're looking at there are mainly phalaenopsis orchids. Uh, most okay. of the phalaenopsis orchids sold are imported from Taiwan, grown in sphagnum moss. 
and you know they're they're grown to be pretty for a little while and then die uh sphagnum moss is not a um is not long term you know a good medium uh to maintain those orchids in and uh you know when you get them home um Number one, you need to be sure they drain well. You need to take them out of that little ceramic pot they may be sitting in. You need to keep them in bright light, uh, probably just a sunny window. You need to water thoroughly, probably about once a week when that sphagnum moss dries out. And as soon as the flowers start to fade, you need to get them out of that uh, moss that they are packed into and into a medium that is uh, much more conducive to long-term culture of orchids which is going to be a mixture of bark and charcoal or something like that orchids in nature most of the orchids out there and certainly all the ones you're looking at are epiphytes that are used to growing clinging to trees and things like that so um no orchid is likely to survive very long in the medium that it comes to you so um and with phalaenopsis it's easy to give them too much light in a greenhouse so uh, it may be too bright for them in there. If I were, well, in my greenhouse, the section where I grow Phalaenopsis probably has at least 60, 65% shade cloth over it. Uh, now, if you okay. branch into growing dendrobiums, if you start growing cattleyas, if you start growing oncidiums, if you start growing uh, all the uh, warm season intergenerics, they're going to be happy in maybe 30% shade when you build up the confidence to try vandas and ascascendas, they're going to want to be in, you know, close to no shade at all in that greenhouse. So we almost have to, you know, look at uh, what kind of orchids you're growing and what basic mistakes you're making. And, and you know, it's, I don't know how to put it nicely, but, and I'm certainly not picking on Greengate because they're about as good as they come in the nursery business in that part of the country. But, um, uh, the the orchids that are produced and theirs are coming out of California. Uh, they're just simply not in a condition that they can be maintained in for a long time. It's kind of like going to the flower shop and uh, buying a chrysanthemum in bloom or a calancho in bloom or something like that. You're supposed to enjoy them while they're in bloom and then throw them away. Those of us who love orchids say that's not good enough. I want to keep this orchid for the next 40 years. But uh, what you're going to have to look at is, you know, keeping them properly watered in, pro- in the proper amount of light when you first get them. But the first first step after enjoying their flowers is going to be to get them out of that medium and into something that they can grow in long term after that you're only going to repot them about every three years and uh if if you choose to repot them before the flowers are really finished you really ought to break those spikes off so the plants can put their effort into growing a you know a new root system and um okay uh look there are a couple there's some good books out there and uh, you might go to the website of the Amer- <clears throat> excuse me the American Orchid Society and look at some of the cultural books they have. Uh, you know, Phalaenopsis are by far the most popular orchids in the United States, and there's some very good books written on their culture. And just don't make it any harder than it already is. But uh, you're you're not a failure by any means. You're you're doing what the the developer of those orchids actually intended for you to do. That's buying them and killing them and buying some more. <laughs> but uh, from somebody who loves orchids and has grown them since the eighth grade, uh, I look forward to helping you any way we can and becoming successful at it. 
How would I recognize sun damage and water damage? Is there a way to recognize it? Water damage will start on the bottom leaves. The roots will turn very spongy and soggy, and the bottom leaves will turn yellow and fall off. Sunburn will be on the top leaves, and it will be suddenly a whitish color to a blackish color. It'll be crisp and dry as opposed to wet and watery. All righty. Well, Bob, thank you so much for all your help. It's always a pleasure, Tony. Nice to talk to you this morning. Happy Father's Day. Great. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. Um, Eric's up next. Good morning, Eric. Happy Father's Day. Thank you, sir. How's everything in your world? Like you said, you can cut the ear Yeah, we, we don't have a very good connection, but uh, you brought too much of that Houston air with you, I can tell. Eric, we've got a real bad phone connection. I'm not hearing you at all. I'm going to put you back on hold and let you get in a little better situation uh, so we can talk. And um, in the meantime, I'll talk to Carolyn. Good morning, Carolyn. Uh, Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I've had a lot of crackling on my phone. Uh, Now when you pick it up, it's fine. Very good. uh, Maybe we can talk. Okay. I have one question. I have... um, I have a compost pile, and uh, I threw some butternut squash seeds in it this uh, winter. Okay. And uh, the only that's the only squash seed I've thrown in. Uh-huh. I had a couple of squash vines come up in there, and I looked one day, and I had a nice butternut squash on one of the vines. It's a very thin vine. Uh-huh. And um, the other one is a huge vine. It's got huge, huge, uh, you know, the... Uh, what do you call them? The vines are just huge. Uh-huh. And the leaves are huge. I measured them this morning. They're 13 by 15. They look, <laughs> oh, wow. They're, they're twice the size of the one that has the squash. Uh-huh. This one gets loads of huge orange uh, or golden flowers, but um, no squash. No squash. I can't even tell that it's ever going to get any squash. The leaves are just a, a massive, too, and uh-huh. I wondered what, what the difference may be. Well, first of all, first of all, all of the plants in that family, squash, cucumbers, pumpkins, melons, cantaloupes, mm-hmm. all everything in that family, the f- male flowers which are the first to come out are of course cannot produce fruit and on every vine typically you will get a few male flowers before you start having female flowers so you almost always have some flowers come and go before you start seeing fruit of any sort. Now my thought is that those are two different kinds of squash. I mean, uh, um, that, and it, that's the, what I'm thinking. The They're second one, squash. Uh, the second one may actually be a gourd instead of a squash, but we're not really going to know until they have had time to grow and actually start producing their fruit. Uh, and the first one sounds actually more like a tatumi than a butternut, but uh, it may also be that just one of them has a much stronger root system that just happens to be growing in an extremely rich part of your compost pile. But um, it, in both cases, it's just going to be wait and see. Uh, the care is the same of them. Uh, we're just, again, until they flower, uh, all of plant taxonomy, all of the naming of plants is based on the structure of flowers and fruit and things like that. So about all I can tell you at this point, it is definitely in that family. We call them the curcurbits. But you need to keep up your watering. Uh, the nice thing about true butternut squash, it is usually a thinner vine, which is pretty much immune to the squash vine borers. Now, the other thing about butternut squash 
Is it while zucchini, crooknecks, you know, what we call our summer squashes or short season squashes, these things produce a mature fruit in 40 to 50 days. Butternut squash is a long season squash, and it may take 100 days or longer before the squash actually ripens. And in the case of these long season squash, we do not pick them when they're small and tender. We let them grow to a big size. We let the skin toughen uh, so that it will have some storage uh, some shelf life, so to speak. So right now we just really need to watch and see what blooms out on that second plant. Your first plant sounds pretty much like a butternut to me. Second plant, uh, could be a butternut on, on steroids. Um, or it could be a hybrid. Uh, you know, we don't know what produced the seed. I mean, it was obviously a butternut squash that you threw the seeds into the vine or into the compost pile. But what made that butternut squash? Was it actually a true hybrid between a butternut squash and a zucchini squash? Because you don't see any changes in the first generation. So uh, watch it. Take care of it. Report back to me on what actually shows up on the way of fruit. and We'll talk about where to go. Okay. That's what I was wondering, if it was a hybrid. Because usually when I buy butternut squash, they both all look the same. Mm -hmm. This one looked a little bit different than the other. The the color was a little bit different. Sure. Yeah, well, and so that might be the one that's making this wild one. But they're both butternut. I don't have any gourds here. Well, and the katsumi is making great. It's way in the other part of the garden, okay. so it's not a katsumi. Yeah, it's not a katsumi. Well, see, at here, all. here's what happens: uh, the kind of squash that a that a plant produces uh, is sort of determined by the female squash plant that produced it. And the daddy, as it were, the one that contributed the pollen to make that, it might be from a zucchini, it might be from a tatumi, it might be from a crookneck, or it might be from a butternut. But the first-generation offspring is going to look, taste, and for all practical purposes, it's going to be a butternut squash. But when you harvest the seed or when you allow the seed to grow from that plant, genetically it's pretty mixed up. And when it gets pollinated, you can have a pretty wide range of different, uh, in a genetics class, we'd call them phenotypes, which means the apparent visual type. So um, until this produces some fruit, uh, we're not really going to know what it is. I okay. think it's a pretty safe thing to say that it's a hybrid of some sort. That's what I'm thinking, because both of them, when I picked them up in the store, didn't look exactly like the butternut that i always get and so i thought one of them looked a little different well we're and thinking I, the same carolyn I'll, I'll look forward to hearing okay. what kind of fruit it okay. produces for you all right thank you very much thank you. thank you and thank you for indulging me in a little genetics 101 just have to have to get a little teaching in there all right let's get back to gardening here and uh let's see how eric's phone's working now from right now it sounds like a better connection well i hope so you know we're as, as, as you well know, in the in the country, and you're limited to a cell, and wherever the tower sits, anything can interfere. You know so. these these as some as as an older cousin would say, these newfangled. But uh, today's phones are really incredible, and they're good for almost everything except making and receiving phone calls. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But oh, a couple questions for you, Bob. I I put some. Um, Four gypsy peppers in about the same time I planted about 30 other plants. And two of them uh, were producing really well. And all of a sudden, 
they just drooped and lost their leaves and stopped. What do you think happened? Have you pulled it up? <clears throat> no, I haven't. I was kind of waiting to talk to you to see what I should do for and, diagnostic. And you've watered it, and it has not perked up or done anything. No. Nope. Yeah, when it drooped, I, I thought, oh, it's just the heat of the day, but let me give it a little bit of water. And the other, the other two, and one of them dropped first, and then, and then the one pretty close to it dropped. But the other two are still going strong. Well, you know, when that happens, you have to say something happened to the root system. Um, it could be considering where you are. It could be a, something has eaten the root system like a gopher, although you usually see signs of that with gopher mounds uh, around. It could be a uh, problem with a grub worm or something that suddenly cut off a large number of roots. Uh, it could be physical damage to the root system of one sort or another. Some of my peppers got really blown around in uh, one of these recent little storms we had or it could be disease because there are diseases not real common diseases but there are diseases that can just hit and destroy the root system of a plant overnight and there's really not much way to know without digging up or pulling up the pepper um i would first thing if it were mine i probably would try putting some super thrive on it putting some garret juice on it seeing if there's anything that will revive it if the stems are starting to turn well in a pepper they never get really soft but the the outer covering uh we can't really call it a bark but that's what it corresponds to uh if that becomes kind of papery if you can in effect rub that off and it is a very dark dark green underneath that plant's dead something has destroyed the root system of the plant and like i say it could be a root rotting bacteria in this case more likely than fungus um, I would probably drench the soil with hydrogen peroxide before I replant, but um, okay. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it, it, it's obviously something destroyed the root system, but whether it is physical or whether it is pathological, uh, that just takes a little bit of study and determination to decide. Okay. Well, I'll try those things. I, I uh, will what? tell you one thing that I see uh, far too commonly. Now, do you have this? Uh, are these peppers in cages? Are they strongly staked? Or are they just growing out there? Um, they are. They are not staked, and they're only about you know twelve or thirteen, fourteen inches tall. But okay. they were they were nice job of producing. Yep. Well, I much as I hate to say it, with the kind of kind of wild weather we've had uh, over the past month, especially the last couple of weeks. Um, there have been some storms capable of whipping those plants back and forth to where it really busted a lot of roots below ground level. Like I say, I came home, uh, my little low shishitos, uh, totally undamaged, but my two feet tall serranos were suddenly about six inches tall because they were all lying on their side on the ground. And Ooh. they definitely suffered a fair amount of root damage, and there's no telling how much those pepper plants bounced around in the last thunderstorm that hit your area. So... Um, it, it could easily be storm damage and it could easily be, you know, damage that's just below the ground that you can't see. And sometimes the plants, you know, still stay looking okay for a little while and then just suddenly realize, Hey, I've got too much plants and not enough roots. Bye. Ooh, okay. okay. So I haven't Good. solved the problem for you, but I hope I've told you what to look for. Absolutely. Okay. Um, next question is I've had two 
cloud pomegranates for about 10 years, and I've yet to get more. I've gotten some beautiful blooms mm-hmm. off them, and they were supposed to be good good producers, but I have not seen anything. What is – is there a pruning plan for pomegranates? Not really. Or? Not really. Okay. Um, are you getting lots of flowers and no fruit, or are you getting very limited fruit production uh, or just, very limited flower production? You know, a very – I would say about 25% of what I would expect on on a 10-year-old tree. I mean, you get you see enough so it looks like a, a Christmas tree with balls and stuff on it and yep. then before long they're they're all gone and there's not a bit of fruit. You know, my guess is that it's a variety and I've never tried growing that one, but um there are a lot of pomegranates developed in California, developing in a little bit different climates that simply don't like South Texas. My guess is that variety is just not an especially good one for this area. Have you got a suggestion? I still grow wonderful. I it's not as big as, you know, some of the new ones, but I've tried ambrosia. I've tried uh some of the new ones, my buddies over at Fanic said try, and I've said, okay, so-so, back to wonderful. That's still the one I grow. That's still the most dependable producer, and it's okay. not the biggest. It's not the prettiest, but it sure does have a lot of fruit on it. Well, that's what that's what we're after. Okay, well, that sounds good. I will look for wonderful at our local nursery. And then my last question is on hydrangeas. Do they prefer a shade environment, a dappled shade, or... Son, the ones that we have are are off of my wife's aunt, and the the original mother plants are probably eighty years old now. From we took them off. and where where were these plants growing? They were on the north side of her little house. In and ver- no, really in, in what part of the country? Where where physically? In Humble. Oh, okay, okay. Um, you know, uh, shade to bright shade, uh, what you're looking at are the big floral type hydrangeas, hydrangeas, as opposed to, uh, um, the oak leaf type hydrangeas, which are generally more successful, but not nearly as showy. Uh, the main thing they want is water, water, and then a little bit more water. And they want a rich soil, plenty of compost, plenty of mulch on the surface, and a little more water. Did I mention that? And then uh, you plant them in the shade, and then you give them a little more water. Uh, yeah, no, it's just that's why you don't see them grown here more commonly, is because they like a different soil. And uh, they would be at the bottom of Saw's list on acceptable plants, which doesn't make you know matter a whole lot to me because I'm not going to plant you know more than one or two of something that I'm interested in. But those plants want it very moist and very rich soil-wise. Sun uh, can either be shade to dapple sun. Little morning sun's not going to bother them, but afternoon sun will burn them up. Yeah, they're in a good spot right now because they they get the morning, but they they do not get the afternoon burn. Okay. So, yeah, that sounds fine. Just fertilize and uh, did I mention water? <laughs> I tell no. you these things, if you let them get dry, they can look like they melt and then they just pop right back up when you water them, but uh that's what you've really got to do if you just if you want to grow good hydrangeas is uh uh drill a separate well just for the hydrangeas. <laughs> okay. I appreciate it, Bob. You have a great Father's Day. Thanks for all that. You, you do the same, Eric. It's good to talk to you. And uh, I'll move on here and talk to James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing? Uh, today? Just, uh, just a a muggy, humid day out there, but, you know, it's uh, not a bad day. 
Yes, sir. I'm out here uh, <clears throat> in the middle of it, enjoying the cloudy morning. Um, I got to cut the cover crop, uh, the Sudan cover crop, for the third time on the uh, on the four four foot by 125 foot uh, growing beds. Yeah, I took it out of production just okay. for a cover crop this year. Uh huh. It, it's starting to. I cut it twice when it got to three feet, and I'm. I got to cut it again because it's starting to flower mm-hmm. and the seed heads. Yeah. Uh, if if I cut it down to about six or eight inches, uh, I don't know if it'll it'll flower again or not. What you- um, it if it gets water, I mean, Sudan's something that normally you know grows and produces all summer long, and uh, in yeah. intense agriculture. You know your hay growers are gonna cut three four times off of it. It's uh it's gonna get stemmy, but uh, it kind of depends on how far down you cut it. If you shred it down close to ground level, some of it'll come back and bloom again. Some of it won't. If you shred it down to twelve inches tall, most everything's gonna regrow and rebloom. Okay, well I'll I'll do it at a foot to see if I can get a little bit more more growth out of it and. One thing with the the string trimmer that has the two strings on it, yeah, um, it's just all my discoveries are just dumb luck. And what happened was one of the strings blew off, uh-huh. and I was uh, cutting the last time with one string. And what that does is, instead of blowing that cover crop all over the garden, it it lays it over like a I think the word is a scythe, right? Scythe, uh-huh. With one string. It'll on the string trimmer. It it just you just cut it and it lays right down. But with two strings, it blows it all over the place. Well, be careful about doing that too much or too long because you've off balanced. <clears throat> excuse me, you've off balanced the head on your trimmer. Well, I went down to talk to the steel guys. Yeah, and Marion, and they, and that's what I thought. But they said. You, you'll be all right with that tremor you've got, but that's the first thing I was thinking about. You will, and I can I can tell you it's going to wear out the head faster. Now they will happily sell you a new head when it gets to that point because you know the you, you got two parts to a tremor. You've got an engine, you've got a head, and you've got some you know metal in between places. But um, you you will feel the wobble as you certainly did. Um, if you feel carefully, you'll know whether you got one or two strings working and believe me, the metal, uh, the, the, I don't, I'm not enough of a mechanic to even know the terminology down there, but over time, it's going to wear out those little gears in the head faster with just one line going, but eh, that's not a big deal. You know, steel is a durable product that can be repaired. It's kind of like a, yeah. you know, good old heavy-duty Ford. You can put a new engine in that uh, in that 350 when the old one wears out and go another 400,000 miles if it's a diesel engine, and your, uh, your steel trimmer is the same way. But um, uh, you are going to wear the head out on a little bit more quickly, just running one line at a time. Yeah, it works real good. It's just you run it through there, and it just lays that uh, that grass right over. Any, any, well, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, they the experts say well to um, to kind of get the nematodes running, the root knot nematodes running. You cover crop with rye, and then you can mm-hmm. use Sudan. But I think it's the same thing as running the ants off. I think the more you cover crop and the more biology you get in this soil, the more competition, the the 
the pest to have. And I think that's what it is, and not just the particular plant that everybody says, well, that'll I, get rid of your nematodes. Well, you, you could not be more right about that, James. And there is actually a fascinating fungus that tends to grow on the mulches, and that fungus actually traps and destroys those nematodes uh, with your cover crop the nematode burrows into the root system and then can't get out and that's the method of control there but there is a beneficial fungus that actually grows in the soil i've seen the electron micrographs of it that makes in its uh, little body structure it's mycelium it actually makes little structures that look like croquet wickets and when a root feeding nematode passes through one of those, it triggers something that uh, that strand swells up like a hose, a fire hose. It's suddenly inflated. It traps and holds the nematodes in place, uh, slowly digests them, in effect pinches them in half. And that's your biology at work. And uh, that's exactly what you're talking about. And you are 100 percent on target with that. I, I think that the more biology you've got going in your soil is just everything comes together to work for the for the good of the plants it's just uh, it's a wonderful thing and a lot of the medina products before i started using them um that like especially the soil activator mm-hmm. i think that's a that's a big plus for for the gardeners out there but i don't know whether it was malcolm or who i heard talk about this but they said if you see a bare spot in the garden like a garden row mm-hmm. or, or a, uh you know, a, a part of your garden that is not mulched and it's not growing in cover crop, you should recoil in horror. <laughs> okay, that's a good that's a good phrase. So, try to keep them mulched, composted, or keep your uh, keep your cover crops going because that that really is beneficial. Yeah. For your, your growing soil. That, that would be a little profound for Malcolm, but uh, he just always used to tell me Mother Nature hates bare soil, and she's going to plant something. She's either going to plant a weed or let you plant what you want. So you are absolutely right on. And, uh, hey, you have a great weekend, and I look forward to your next visit. Thanks, Bob. Thank you always, James. Thank you, sir. All right, let's get right on back to these phone lines. It's going to be Mike and Darla and Gilbert and Barbara, and Mike's first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob, and uh, happy uh, Daddy Day to everybody that applies. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, got a few questions for you. Let's get started. Uh, on my plumeria, I'm not getting any flowers. I've, I've just uh, healthy-looking plants, beautiful. But, Lots of uh, sun. Very cheaply in full sun. Uh, they do have full sun. Okay. You need a healthy dose of patience. <laughs> Plumeria is late this year, Mike. It's just uh, we've been short on sun. Uh, we're certainly getting into the heat. But I suspect that if you looked at actual sunlight and sunlight hours, uh, the past two months were about half where we typically would be. When they start blooming, they're going to be gorgeous. But uh, everybody I know with Plumeria... They're uh, they're slow to bloom. All the ones you see at the nurseries in bloom, they were pretty much shipped in from uh, somewhere sunnier. Yours are going to get there. Nothing wrong with what you're doing, but we just had too many clouds. Are there male and female plumeria? No, they're they're uh, the same. Uh, they're what we call them uh, monoecious. Yeah. Okay. Well, that takes care of that. They need some of them have part shade, but yeah. uh, anyway, moving on. 
the orchids uh, lady was talking to you, or you were talking to a lady earlier. Orchids, uh, the medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been told just to put one ice cube in once a week for watering. Oh, that's BS. You know, okay. that that's crazy. Uh, like every other plant, an orchid wants to be watered extremely thoroughly when it's watered and then doesn't want to be watered again until it's dry to the proper point. Now, the most commonly sold orchids these days, the Phalaenopsis orchids, they do not have any water storage structure, so you never want to let them get just totally thoroughly dry. Um, I'd, it, how often they need to be watered is going to depend on the medium they're in. If they're still stuck in that sphagnum moss, probably every five to seven days watering. Once you get them into a medium they like, it's probably going to be about every three to four days. Now, there are other types of orchids, Cattleyas, Dendrobiums, Oncidiums, that have what we call pseudobulbs, which are water storage structures, and they want to get a little bit drier between waterings. But uh, um, there's no way you can set a every so many days. You've got to feel the medium and see, and um, I'm, I'm not an ice cube fan for orchids. Um, okay. I don't. I think it doesn't produce enough water in most cases. And like I say, as soon as they're through flowering, get them out of that awful sphagnum moss and into a fir bark medium, which they can live for years in. Okay. Uh, you say wait until they stop flowering before you transplant it? Yeah. You just when you pull all that sphagnum off the roots and things like that, it's going to be something of a shock to the plant system. It's going to shorten the life of the flower. So. Enjoy the flowers. When you water, water thoroughly. Wait until that uh, medium is good and dry on the surface, and then water again. But when the flowers have gone, get them repotted as quickly as you can. And the medium you had said earlier uh, was bark? Yeah, fir bark, Uh, Douglas fir bark, and charcoal is the medium that I use. You can also buy prepackaged mediums, uh, which may have core, C-O-I-R, in them, which are wonderful, but stay away from the ones that have peat moss of any sort in them. Okay. Uh, what was that? Just what kind of bark was that? Uh, Douglas fir. Just fir bark is what they call it. You don't want fir pine bark. bark. It's got too much pitch in it. No pine bark, but fir bark, uh, which is usually from uh, western red cedar or Douglas fir, is going to be a really good medium for orchids. But not ash. My, my wife was saying you said ash. But I remember you saying bark and charcoal. No. Uh, you can use some lava if you like, but uh, not ash. No. Not at all. But charcoal. You, you did say charcoal, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, and true charcoal, like you'd use in a fish aquarium filter, not something you're going to burn in the barbecue pit. Okay. Charcoal, uh, fur bark. Uh, moving on then, I thank you for that. Avocados. I have uh, uh, some avocados, and the the trunk is real thin, skinny. Mm-hmm. And I have a castor bean that's beautiful, but it's real tall. I'm afraid it's going to fall over. It's just real skinny and tall. Should that be repotted into a larger pot? To- well, castor beans are an annual. They're only going to live through the summer, and that's going to be it. And uh, they want full, hot, bright sun. If they're thin and skinny, they're probably not getting as much sunlight as they need. Uh, pot size has nothing to do with how thin or strong the stem is. But uh, your avocado, you'll have to judge if it's gotten a real heavy root system, whether it needs a new pot or not. But that castor bean, if there's anywhere you can put it in the ground, I get it out of the pot and into the ground. And, uh, Mike, I've got to get another commercial in here. So can we do the rest of the questions another time? 
Okay, I'll, I'll call you back. Then. I'll look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Uh, but don't dial right now because every line's taken, and let's get started. And Darla's first. Good morning, Darla. Good morning. Good morning. I lost you there for just a second. Uh, I, first of all, happy Father's Day to you and all your four-legged babies. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I have a quick question about wild persimmons. Okay. Out on the ranch, I have wild persimmons everywhere, and for the first time in my life, I've seen a growth on them that is really strange. They have lichen on them, which I know you've always said is not uh, harmful to the plant. It's mm-hmm. just causing stress. But along with the lichen, there's a grayish-white growth that hangs down, a hairy-looking growth that almost looks like a a moss, you mm-hmm. know, like a... But but it just hangs down, yeah. and all the leaves are, are leaving the the plants what in the world is that well if it's gray it is probably a bromeliad it's probably related to what they call spanish moss which is first cousin to the ball moss now that would not cause leaf drop uh leaf drop is usually a water issue of one sort or another there is a weird parasitic plant called dotter that you sometimes see i can't say that i remember seeing it on uh native persimmons but you see it on some other things but it's always kind of a reddish brown it is it is not gray in color if uh, um mm. if it's gray in color it's almost certainly uh if you want to look up tillandsia t-i-l-l-a-n-d-s-i-a that is almost certainly what it is and that is totally harmless but uh leaf drop on uh on uh, what we call native persimmons the ones with the black fruit uh that's a water issue give or take well, it's so strange. there's there's just a group of of the persimmons that grow along the road on one side of the road that have this on it there it's like it's contagious from one to the other and on the other side of the road the the plants are healthy well it's just so strange yeah it uh what what area what part of the of the world is this in oh i'm sorry it's in freer duval county in freer and we've had you know yeah we've had rain and then drought and then rain and then drought yeah it's just, it's just so strange. I've, I've lived here off and on for 78 years, and I've never seen it before. Well, uh, again, if you ever want to, you know, pick off a little sample of it and send me or something like that, I'll be more than happy to take a look at it. But uh, yeah. from what you're describing, it sounds like, and, and this little bromeliad reproduces with a seed that has kind of a sail on it, and uh, it blows from place to place and expands its range very mm-hmm. gradually, uh, but it doesn't cause the decline in the health of the plants. That That's what has me a little stumped and makes me, right. you know, wonder, is this on your land or is this on someone else's? It, it's actually right next to my, my land. It's on my brother's. Mm-hmm. I saw it. Uh, in fact, I took pictures of it on May the 31st, and I just now I've been able to get through to to ask you about it uh, I, i'll probably call your nursery uh maybe monday or tuesday and find out how to send you a picture I don't that'd, do that'd be a good idea that's be yeah, a good I idea i'm going to be 
I will look forward to Facebook, but I can send it on on the phone. Yeah, I don't do Facebook and the social media things, but uh, they can do that. I'm going to be in and out this week. This is one of my weeks that I'm partly in town, partly out of town, but I'll certainly take a look at it as soon as I'm able and let you know what to see. Your brother doesn't use Remedy or any of the brush killers, does he? No, no, no. They're all organic. He actually has cancer and is on a totally organic and alkaline diet. He's lived for two years when they told him he had two months to live. You know, I hope he's as fortunate as my friend Alton Grimm. They gave him six months, and I think he made it 38 years. So uh, wow. yeah, never yeah. say never. A positive attitude and a good diet and uh, rest yeah. uh, does a lot for you. Well, listen, I'll look forward to seeing it. In the meantime, I'm guessing Talansia usneoides, if you if you want to know botanically. But we'll, we'll confirm or, or figure something else out in the near future, Darla. Okay, well, thanks a bunch, and you have a great day. Thank you so much. I sure appreciate it. All right, taking these calls in order. Gilbert's next, and it will be Barbara and Jane. Uh, good morning, Gilbert. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. How are you today? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing well, Bob. If I was any better, I'd be you. Thank you, for... <laughs> you. You better be careful what what you say there. I, uh, but anyway, I yeah, uh, I'm glad you're. I'm I'm glad you feel the same way I do. <laughs> Thank you for all the pearls of wisdom you share with. Oh yeah, me, my pleasure, uh, Bob. I've planted several of the uh, clementine tangerines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been in the ground a couple of months. They already have fruit on them. I'm noticing that uh, toward the end of the day, the foliage seems to wilt quite a bit. What I'm doing is foliar feeding them. I'm using granular uh, fertilizing them that way as well. Uh I'm freshening the foliage a little bit with a little bit of water during the day. My question is, should I build some type of a barrier to keep the hot afternoon sun off of them right now? Um, And you say you've had them about six months? No, about three about three months you could put a little shade cloth up if you wanted to but uh let's face it in three months time those trees haven't had time to grow much roots and i would pretty much get away from the foliar feeding now if you want to give them a little bit of uh uh you know micronutrient supplement a little bit of iron things like that but an old buddy with the USDA a long time ago told me, in, or I listened to him say in a lecture one time, he said, plant's only going to grow as much root as it needs to support itself. And if you are giving those plants all the nutrition they need through their leaves, they have absolutely no reason to develop a deep root system. They're they're getting everything they need foliarly, so what do they need roots for? So I am, I am much more in favor of uh, nutrition through the roots. Now, a little bit of help through the leaves every now and then a little bit of supplementation with something like garret juice yeah i think that's a good thing but i'm sure not going to be giving them a lot of nutrient uh you know through the leaves uh, because that will always be the expense of root development so um if you want to give them a little shade you can uh if i were gonna can do anything to help them i probably would construct some sort of wind barrier uh, to keep these really hot, drying winds off of them, and one thing to remember about um, you know about drooping, a lot of times that is not really a sign of stress. It's just a you know it, it's a sign that the plants are just losing water a little bit more 
quickly than they can take it up. So it's not always a bad thing. And if you're not losing leaves, I my rule on watering is if it's droopy in the afternoon, don't worry about it. If it's still droopy the next morning, water it. But uh, I at this point, I think I'm looking at keeping the roots cool. I'm looking at uh, building a big root system, and I'm not going to be a little concerned if they droop a bit in the afternoon. Okay, well, thank you very much. I've got another question for you concerning live oak trees. Yes, sir. I live on a few acres of property out here, and when I moved in 30 years ago, these trees were big. They're uh-huh. huge. I take very good care of them. I'm a good steward of this place. Um, the canopies 80, 80 to 100 feet high. Wow. Is there any way of me just saying how old are, are they without having them cored? Is there any way of guesstimating how old they may be? Ah, uh, <laughs> they're... You know, it 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 would just be a guesstimate. Uh, I'm what what area of uh, what area are you in? I'm north of you all, in between Shirts and New Braunfels. Okay, um, you could talk to a good arborist. You could talk to a good forester. Um, and, uh, you could probably send some pictures to, uh, Mark Peterson. He's with saws now used to be with the Texas forest service. And Mark's probably looked at more trees and, uh, uh, just about anybody in the area saw him yesterday at a memorial service for, uh, just an old time outstanding botanist named Paul Cox. But, uh, it, it would strictly be a guesstimate and, uh, but you know, uh, a lot can be told by, you know, knowing what the land looked like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and there are places where fire went through, and you can be sure none of the trees are more than 100 years old. There are places that were just totally overgrazed and uh, destroyed by cattle where there wasn't a tree in sight. But somebody with a historical perspective and, and a good arborist is going to be able to make a guess, but it's that's what it's going to be is is a guess. And I'd probably start with Mark Peterson, heck of a nice guy, works for uh, saws. You can get him through the saws conservation department, and uh, okay. um, he, he would be the first person I would turn to. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate all you. Let me let me give you one other possible name. In fact, I might be able to bring a phone number up here. But uh, the best arborist I know uh, is a fellow who's doing independent consulting now. He retired, decided he didn't need to work so hard at 70 years old. But he he retired from uh, uh, with uh, Edder Tree Care. But his name is David Vaughn. And his, he is a consulting arborist, and if you're able to jot down a phone number, it's 210-788-4986. And David's still the guy I go to with questions about trees, and uh, he might be able, he probably has looked at trees out in your area, and he can probably do a pretty good guesstimate with just you sending him a picture on the phone or something. But give David a try. Give Mark Peterson a try. Average the answers, and you'll have a pretty good idea of the age. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Always a pleasure, Gilbert. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's get right on back to gardening, and it is Barbara's turn. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. I have a couple quick questions for you. I'll try to have a couple of quick answers. Okay. I have I have star jasmine, you know, climbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, confederate jasmine, jasmine, fragrant jasmine, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's been beautiful. I have wonderful flowers this spring. Um, now it has these uh, long, like, uh, see, I thought they were pods. looks like beans. I thought they were seed, uh, seed they are. pods. But they are. Not. No, they, they are seed pods. 
I don't see seeds. It just looks milky. Well, if you let them stay on long enough and they um, open naturally, they there would be seeds in there. But nobody grows uh, Confederate jasmine, star jasmine from seed. But but that is oh, the okay. seed pot that you're seeing. But uh, um, I'm not sure how fertile, how viable the seeds really are. But it's just it's a sign of an outstanding cultural year for jasmine it has loved the cooler temperatures it has loved all the moisture and it's responding by making some seeds which it doesn't usually do right okay but i i I was wondering if i could use those to grow more but perhaps not (laughs) no if you want to grow more you can grow them from cuttings fairly easily you'll take your cuttings in the fall and call me in october so and i'll tell you exactly how to do it but uh nobody grows jasmine that way okay and uh, one other question, I have some uh, mountain laurel that got this web worm type of thing in the fall. Right. And I sprayed them. It really took most of the foliage off. Um, and then they were really struggling coming back this spring, but they've got um, some new green, light green growth on the mm-hmm. ends of some of them. So is there something particular I should do? Should I spray them with something now to prevent <laughs> that again or, or fertilize hey, them with something particular? What you should not do is water them. Uh, Mount Laurel, about the only thing I ever see going wrong with Texas Mount Laurels when it stays too wet and Mother Nature. Uh, You know, we had a very wet uh, mid-fall, a very dry early winter, and then a very wet spring. Those little caterpillars are always a sign of stress on the plants. Uh, I would check your Mount Laurels, be certain that they're not buried too deeply, that you actually see something of a root flare just like we do on other trees. Uh, if you have a sprinkler system, I would be certain, uh, I would make certain that it's not watering your mountain laurels. If it means uh, most most sprinkler heads have a little set screw in the middle of the top that you can uh, crank down to where you pretty much turn them off. Otherwise, right. you can actually take that head off and put a blank plug in there. But mountain laurels right now are suffering from too much moisture. Now, that could change today. Or we could have a wet summer, and if you have a crystal ball, uh, let me know about it. But uh, all all you're seeing is stress on your mountain laurels, and it's all related to more moisture than they like. Okay. All righty. That's what I needed. Thank you so much. Great questions. Thank you for the call this morning. (laughs) Goodbye. Uh Bye-bye. All right. Next up is Jane, and then it's going to be Bill and Richard. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thank you? you so much. I have a couple of quick questions, actually, for my, my daughter, my son-in-law, uh, gardening questions about vegetable patches, weed control, and uh, bug control. Okay. They have honeybees. And so the question is, is neem oil safe for the honeybees? And if so, when should they go ahead and apply it? Because I guess they've got white aphids and a whole bunch of other things on that beautiful vegetable garden. Okay. Um, Neem is not, there's not really much of any insecticidal material that's safe for honeybees. Neem is not as bad as some, but it's not good for them. Uh, If you have aphids... Uh, two things to do. First of all, many times just washing them off with a hose is enough to get rid of them. Uh, the other thing, if they feel like they need to spray with anything, get insecticidal soap. 
That's the one thing that will not bother the bees, but it'll be pretty good at killing the aphids. Just don't spray it in the heat of the day. Spray it either early morning or late afternoon. But insecticidal soap will take care of them. Uh, second thing that is a possibility is go to a good nursery, get a package of ladybugs, and release the ladybugs. Ladybugs are having a phenomenal year. There was a cloud of ladybugs last week in California. They say it was 80 miles across. I saw radar wow. images of it so there are lots of ladybugs out there and ladybugs will get aphids under control fairly quickly in a vegetable garden but uh if they feel like they need to spray insecticidal soap would be my choice okay and where can we buy ladybugs uh just about any good nursery is going to have them okay fantastic okay the next question is weed control my daughter says that she because we are avid Bob Webster listeners, and so we told them use orange oil and vinegar, and mm-hmm. she said that their weeds apparently are resistant to orange oil and vinegar. Well, so she, I don't know if it's a matter of the right uh, concentration, or is it something better? Well, it probably, she's not using a strong enough vinegar. Um, you've got to use uh, whatever strength vinegar it takes to kill it. Uh, at a nursery or a feed store, you can buy 20% vinegar. Uh, at the very minimum, I would use what they call pickling vinegar from the grocery store, which is 9%. Your old standard vinegar is just 4 or 5% acetic acid, and uh, I would go with at least 9%, and if that's not doing the job, i go 20%. Um, this would be a great day to get your... I guess if it's your, is it your son or son-in-law? Son-in-law. Okay. Son-in-law needs to get a push-pull hoe for a Father's Day gift. Uh, they're not cheap. They are imported from uh, usually out of Switzerland or one of the Scandinavian countries. Uh, they just can't make a decent one here in the U.S. for whatever reason. But a push-pull hoe is a also called a stirrup hoe. It is an amazing device. It cuts when you push. It cuts when you pull. Rows in my garden are 30, 35 feet long. I can go from one end of the garden to the other down a row, totally removing the weeds with my hoe um, probably in five minutes on a 30-foot row. It takes, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it, they don't just fall over at the side of this thing, but it is the most effective weed control device in the world, and it quite frankly takes lots longer and much more trouble to mix up and spray uh, than it simply does to uh, um, to go up and down a row. Now, expect to pay 60 70 bucks for one of these things, but uh, okay. by the same token, I've had one that I've used for 8 or 10 years. I've gone through three handles on it, and uh, it's you never have to sharpen them, but uh, it is a really quality gardening tool, and it is my go-to device for weed control. Um, occasionally when I'm clearing a big area or something like that, yeah, I'll use vinegar and orange oil, but, uh, that's not the day-to-day thing. I, and in fact, yesterday evening I was in my garden. What did I do? I laid the hose down and the furrow down the middle of my two rows of okra and let it water while I picked up my push-pull hoe and, uh, you know, eight, ten minutes, I totally weeded two different rows of the garden. So, uh, um, I, I think that would make an outstanding Father's Day gift. Sounds like it to me. I really do. I think that'd be great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your help. You have a great day. You do the same. Thanks for the call. All right. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Bill, Richard, Paul, and Rebecca. Bill is first. Good morning, Bill. Hi, Bill. Oh, well, maybe you hit the wrong one here. Hang on just a second. Punch that button, then punch that one. Good morning, Bill. 
Good morning, Bob. I have a tree question. All right, sir. Uh, I probably got several hundred trees on my property, mostly live oaks and cedar elms. Okay. And I and I try to uh, have a regular program of trimming them up so that I can get my shredder and my mower underneath, take care of my pastures and up around the house. And the question is principally live oaks. When I if I trim ten live oaks mm-hmm. uh, for for the next five years, four to five years, sixty percent of them don't need any other work. Right. But but maybe forty percent of them develop what you know, I'll borrow a term from you, they get this trashy trunk, uh-huh. and they they have these sprouts come out from, you know, just above ground level, up the whole trunk of the tree, and uh, it looks terrible, and then I've got to go out the next year and trim all of those out. What's the difference? Why do some live oaks not get that, and many of them do? Check the root flare. Believe it or not, having the root flare buried Many times will both encourage sprouts coming off the root, off the roots, and you know will also encourage that bark up and down or that growth up and down the trunk. Uh, the other thing sometimes has to do with the density of the canopy. The denser the canopy is, the less likely that tree is ever to have sprouts coming out up and down the trunk. Uh, I mean, the tree senses, if there's no light hitting the trunk, there's no reason for me to put a green leaf there. But uh, I'd be looking carefully at root flare uh, on those trees would be the first place I would look. That makes sense. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. What else can I help with? Good for today. Thanks, Dr. Then you have a uh, very happy Father's Day, Bill, and we'll talk again. Good to hear your voice, or I missed you at the nursery uh, the other day. But we will definitely talk again, and right now I will talk to Richard. Good morning, Richard. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. First, I want to thank you for all the advice you've given me through the years, uh, looking at my yard and uh, lots of things that have uh, on your advice and grown very well. Well, it has been my pleasure. Glad things are going well for you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, two things. Uh, I'd like your recommendation for a uh, a uh, hedge, a privacy hedge. Uh, but the thing is, it's going to receive pretty much total shade. It's uh, They're under big trees and stuff, so they're going to get a, maybe you know, 90% shade. Okay. And That's how 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 tall does this uh, privacy hedge need to be? I would like it to be at least... Uh, Four feet, maybe mm-hmm. four to six. Okay. And is this in an area that you regularly water and maintain, or is this in a more rural area? Uh, yes, sir. It is in a maintained area, and it does have a uh, sprinkler system available okay. uh, along that road. Okay. Um, if you're looking for the prettiest uh, hedge that will be dense and will grow four to five feet in height, uh, look at a plant they call gold dust acuba, A-U-C-U-B-A. Uh, okay. That's the same plant we've had uh, had planted on the front of our nursery for 38 years. We planted it first year we were in business. The plants are still there and beautiful. Uh, my partner trims them back about once a year so they don't get up high enough to hide the sign. But it is a beautiful, colorful, dense, dense hedge. Uh, and it stays it stays four to five feet would be about the height, and it's full from top to bottom. Now, other possibilities, although they're going to get bigger, 
Uh, there are two or three forms of viburnum. One of the prettiest for a shady area like this is something called mirror, M-I-R-R-O-R, mirror leaf viburnum. Uh, it's going to want to be six, eight feet tall, though, and it's going to be about as wide as it is tall, so it does take up some room. But it is a beautiful, glossy, green, healthy, vigorous uh, plant, and uh, mirror leaf viburnum would make a a, a nice thick privacy barrier, but it's going to take up a lot more room. You could also, if you want a small monster over there, you could plant loquat. Loquat will grow in the shade. Uh, it's going to grow probably 10, 12 feet tall and 10 or 12 feet wide. It's not going to have a lot in the way of flowers, but it will produce a, sort of an amber-colored fruit many years. But uh, those are probably my top three choices. And if you want a, a really nice manicurable shrub, uh, Goldus Cuba is definitely going to be my choice, but if you want something a little bigger, a little bit more massive, uh, consider mirror leaf. If you want something that's just, uh, tough as nails, consider loquat. Okay. Very good. Yeah, I like that, uh, Cuba that you described first, cause I'd like to keep it width wise, maybe around three feet wide. Yeah. Uh, so and that sounds like that will work great. Yeah. And if you happen to be in San Antonio and ever just drive by the front of Shades of Green, look toward the left side of the building. Those are the same plants we planted 38 years ago. Oh, excellent. Yes, I come by there once in a while. Okay. So I always like visiting your place. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, other quick question. Uh, I have a uh, planter where I call it monkey grass has propagated out of there and is growing out into the carpet grass and Bermuda grass, and it's so... Uh-huh dense that it chokes out everything <laughs> yes. and uh, my dog and myself we like to lay on it because it feels so good when you switch when it's mowed so my question is can that be used as a replacement grass because it seems to i mean nothing grows in there weeds yep. or anything yeah um it doesn't stand up to foot traffic well but okay. uh it it is a great substitute and uh you know, if you said, hey, but I really need, I love this, but I really need to walk through this area a lot, you put down some flagstone and let the monkey grass grow all around it. Now, there are two different forms of monkey grass, mondo grass, ophiopogon, whatever name you want to call it by. There's your standard monkey grass. It's going to grow somewhere between 8 and 15 inches in height. And then there is a beautiful, beautiful little what they call a dwarf mondo grass, or botanically a dwarf ophiopogon pogon that never exceeds uh, two three inches in height in fact we sometimes plant it between flagstones and uh, uh, it is a highly desirable plant and like you say it chokes out everything else it's just a little slow to grow and spread this did not happen overnight i'm sure you'll agree but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. where it gets water where it gets some care uh, it is going to choke out everything, and it's happy in the shade. If it's in real good soil, it can tolerate the sun, but my guess is this is a fairly shady area and uh, yeah. where it gets plenty of moisture, and that's uh, it, it's actually not a grass. It's actually in the lily family, but, uh, yeah, tough, hardy, trouble-free plant. Okay, very good. I'm glad to know that, and it's actually grown underneath the magnolia tree. Yeah, well, ideal so. thing. Be careful if you're mulching. Uh, don't mulch mondo grass. One of the things that, you know, ends up killing it is if it gets buried too deeply and, uh, it doesn't really need the mulch, but since it's under a magnolia, I'm sure your magnolia loves the mulch, but, uh, keep the mulch away from the mondo grass. You'll find it stays too wet and starts to rot a bit. Okay, sir. Very good. 
Well, again, uh, thank you for everything you do and all your information, and, and have a great day, sir. Yeah, you do the same. I appreciate it, Richard. I thank you, sir. And uh, let's see, it's Paul's turn next. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning. Uh, I have been talking to you about my zucchinis. I have an orange one and a green one. My green one has been producing my orange one. Um, they're, they're right next to each other in the garden. The orange one still hasn't done anything, and it's kind of petering out. My green one... It was giving me some nice zucchinis, but they were they were kind of small. Um, but now they're they're getting to about thumb size, and I'm thinking, all right, tomorrow they'll be ready to pick. And then I go back out there, and they've turned to almost a lime green instead of a deep green, and they're squishy. Okay, they're not getting good pollination. You've either got to encourage more bees to come into the garden, or you've got to take over the job of bees. Uh, and I see this, I see the other thing uh, that's a similar situation is they'll start to make what looks like a new squash and then the uh, rest of it just kind of, as you say, turns turns kind of squishy and nasty. But you have to have one pollen grain on the surface of the female flower, what's called the stigmatic surface, for every single seed that would be in that zucchini, which might be 500 seeds. So either do something to attract more bees or get yourself a little artist paintbrush, dab it around in the middle of the male flower, which will have all that yellow-orange pollen in it, and then go over and just, you know, very heavily kind of paint it on to the little center piece down in the flower, which is the uh, female part. It's called the pistil. Uh, the distal end of it is called the uh, the stigmatic surface. You want to just cover that up with pollen, and you'll start getting uh, good squash within two or three days. Okay. And then... Um... As I have some uh, Indian hawthorns in my yard. Um, the deer have discovered they really, really love my yes, Indian hawthorns. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I've netted them off. Um, now they're, you know, segregated. The deer can't get to them. But they've eaten them down to there's just little tiny nubs on them. Mm-hmm. Um, fertilizer, they should come back. There's enough time to get them back healthy before we go dormant and fall. Well, we don't ever really go truly dormant, but we stop growing. Uh, yeah, you've got lots of time to put some good growth onto them. Uh, be careful that you don't keep them too wet. Um, I know it's tempting uh, to water more frequently, but uh, uh, when you don't have much foliage, you don't use a lot of water. So, yeah, I make an application of... Uh, Medina or nature's creation or whatever good uh, organic fertilizer you use uh, are your mountain laurels in pretty much full sun uh indian hawthorns yeah i'm they sorry get, uh, yeah they get a uh, really good morning sun uh, and then sun till about two in the afternoon and then the house starts shading them okay because the more sun the happier indian hawthorn will be uh but they are deer food golly you should have that discussion with alice mcdermott over at usaa she loved her hawthorns and loved her deer and couldn't understand that she couldn't have them co-mingling but uh yeah you either have to net them off or there are a couple of effective if somewhat stinky deer repellents but uh uh, Indian yeah, hawthorn and roses are the two of their favorite dietary items. So uh, you I, do. It. I had to have tried probably nine different deer repellents, and uh, yeah, they still eating them. Um, so I've got them netted off. That's uh, good to hear that they will come back. Yeah. Um, I transplanted my wife's mums that had been sitting on the um, 
on the <laughs> the deck. Yeah, I got them. I got them put in and netted off. You said trim them back in July. Right. How heavy of a trimming am I going to give them in July? You want to leave at least fifty percent of the foliage on them, but trimming them back is going to make them fill out and branch. And in the meantime, be feeding them with liquid fertilizer. Has to grow or a swomer or ladybug or not ladybug, but uh, uh, Fox Farms, one of theirs. But uh, feed regularly, like every couple of weeks, and it would be nice to cut them back by at least uh, half. But uh, you just can't take all the active foliage off. And uh, um, after they bloom, they tend to lose some lower leaves. So cut them back as far as you can and still leaving about 50% of the foliage on the plants. And then I'm going to do that beginning of July, middle of July. Ah, Let's do the middle of July. July. Let's do the middle of July. Now, keep in mind that uh, her chrysanthemums probably were more florist-type chrysanthemums and they may or may not be really adaptable to fall or to yard culture uh they're going to be pretty but um just the ones who were bred and developed to be grown in greenhouses don't always like uh, shall we just say outdoor activities in south texas but um with it, nothing to lose by uh you know by giving them a try and i, I certainly think you probably have pretty good luck with them yeah, I got them so they'll get uh, like some really good morning sun, and then the heat of the day they'll be shaded by my crepe myrtles and my um, uh, my little gem magnolias. So okay, should, I, I hope I got them in a, a yeah. Good that that sounds like a perfect perfect place for moms. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate your help, Bob. You're you're helping me adjust to the uh, Texas gardening scene. Well, it's uh, it's a good place to be, but it is a somewhat slow road to get there. So uh, it's my pleasure to help any way we can, Paul. Appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Yep, thank you. Certainly. Goodbye. All right, here we are back to gardening. Just reading a message from the governor on my on my email during that break. He vetoed a bill. Uh, he just did the right thing and. Uh, uh, again, I'm sure Bernie Starr will have a lot to say about this in their Tuesday edition. I'm not going to take the time to go into it right now because we'd have to do a whole class on groundwater, which I'd love to do. But uh, uh, it's just very refreshing when somebody in political office does what you consider to be the right thing, when somebody responds to the wishes of the citizens and not of uh, big business. Um, anyway, I... I'm very, very proud of the governor for a veto that he issued yesterday. And uh, if you're interested in water, um, you can certainly look into it. I just read his veto proclamation that he sent out. And uh, uh, for those of us in the water management business, so to speak, uh, it was a good day yesterday. Uh, Let's get back and talk gardening, on the other hand. And uh, Rebecca's first. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. My big problem is squash beetles, and this all started two years ago, and they got out of hand before we sort of realized that we tried spraying them with stuff, and the plants died, and we just got what produce off of it we could. Mm-hmm. And so then last year, we were more proactive looking for them, tried neem oil, spinosad, soap, all kinds of things, and they got out of control across the garden into the watermelons and cantaloupes. And uh, this year, you, we had called you last year, and you said you had a friend that would pick them off and put them in a bucket of soap. Right. So we, were all, we did that, and even where we saw the little eggs, we picked the eggs or the leaf, and we were, like, kept up with it. And then one day it just blew up, and mm-hmm. it was all over the squashes, 
starting to move over to the uh, cantaloupes, and I just, we don't know what to do. They don't seem to respond to anything. Okay. And I mean, it's like it's like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> everywhere. We've got white gravel down underneath, over weed barrier is the floor of our garden, and mm-hmm. they're just everywhere okay. the little babies just cover the squashes okay well let's let's distinguish between two different things what you're looking at are squash bugs which are okay. a horrible nuisance uh, and i don't okay. want to confuse them with squash vine borers which are a deadly threat uh which are actually inside the stems i'm going to tell you um the best thing that i have found against those is a product called spinosad soap it is a mixture, uh, came out about two years ago. Uh, this year, it's, uh, we've been able to get a concentrated form as well as the ready to use. But the spinosad soap combination works far better than spinosad alone or soap alone. You will want to keep it off of the flowers because spinosad is, uh, hard on bees. But um, especially with the juvenile form, those uh, little grayish ones that just run everywhere, yes. that spinosad yes. soap, it will kill them, and it will kill them very quickly. Um, and, you know, the big adults, you just grab them where you see them. That soapy water is uh, is still a good thing if you are not comfortable using the old thumb and forefinger trick with gloves on. Don't do it without gloves on because you got little hard parts that will stick in your fingers. But I would get, okay. you can buy spinosad soap in a little ready-to-use sprayer, and it it's very safe for the plants. It is totally safe for people and pets. I would do my spraying early morning or late afternoon, but uh, give the spinosad soap a try. I think you'll find it to be pretty effective. Okay, do they live in the ground over the winter? I mean, are these bugs left over from last year? Because they just showed up immediately. Oh, I know. They show up uh, at the same time every year. They're overwintering. I'm not sure if it's in uh, nearby weeds and debris. They're, um, you know, some things that just harbor over the winter on the weedy growth. Uh, These may very well be in the soil, but it's like they know the day that your squash starts growing and uh yeah. it's just like they come and <laughs> they come and bring their uh their extended family shall we say and uh they yeah. are they are a real mess uh but i think yeah. your spinach head soap's gonna do the job just try to keep it away from the flowers because we certainly don't want to bother the bees because we have to have pollination to get good squash right how often can we use it mm, every five minutes oh, i just okay. so you just- know I, the little buggers. Yeah. What I do is I will walk through the garden and spray things down with water. The adults all come running up to the top leaves to dry off, and they get the okay. thumb and forefinger treatment. Uh, the juveniles are going to be down toward the center of the plants, and uh, I'm just walking along with uh, with a, you know, a sack to pick in one hand and my spray bottle of spinosad in the other. Okay. Perfect. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. Report back to me. I want to know how well it works for you, Rebecca. Will do, sir. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Let's see here. Linda is definitely up first. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, um, I tried to grow sweet potatoes last year. Uh-huh. And the sprouts, you know, when you leave them in the cupboard. Right. And they sprout up, and I cut those off, put them in water. They rooted up, and I planted them. Uh-huh. What I got out of it was about the diameter of a quarter to about 
nine inches long. But I didn't get anything, you know, like that re- resembled a sweet potato. When, uh, how, what time of year did you plant them? Uh, right about this time. Okay. You probably just need to water more and fertilize more. Um, okay. You certainly should. As you probably discovered, they will make a very vigorous, very, very thirsty vine. And yes. it takes a while for them to produce. I mean, I would not expect to have a decent-sized sweet potato planting this time of year. It's going to be October, November before you actually have oh. a good-sized sweet potato. This is not this is not a real short-term project. This this is a water me all summer, take care of me, feed me, and I'll give you something nice for Thanksgiving. Okay, so I was just impatient. Probably so, as most of us are, but uh, as we gardeners learn not to be. All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Good luck with it, Linda, and thank you. All right. Uh, Esperanza is going to be next. Then it will be Virginia and Diane. Uh, good morning, Esperanza. Good morning, Father. Good morning. Um, and happy Father's Day. For thank Father's you. Day. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you. Um, we, we got uh, about two acres about nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we planted some pecan trees. Uh, had some pecans from the uh, ones from the Alamo downtown. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, those are old trees, and um, I love them. So we got some, and we planted two of them here. One of them grew up to be about, say, four feet tall. Okay. And then uh, ants or termites got into it. So the the roof is, um, we, we pulled the dirt back, and the root is still um, planted, but it started getting a lot of, uh, new growths from there. Mm-hmm. So we took off um, everything except two of them, and okay. we're waiting to see which of the two um, is going to be strongest. Well, you're doing it right. Now, ants and termites don't eat live wood. Um, they weren't the cause of the problem. They were sort of the after effect of the problem. How often have you been watering these uh, pecan trees? Um, well, like it had been raining uh, quite a bit. Right. We just well, watered them once in a while whenever we saw that, you know, they, they needed watering. Uh, it did get hot in between that, and mm-hmm. those are the times when we did water. Yeah. Well, you need to not water very frequently, but you need to really, really, really water th- thoroughly when you water pecan trees are very thirsty trees but they like to get a little dry between times and um you know there's no reason those trees shouldn't grow up and be as beautiful as the trees down at the alamo uh the problem is that virtually all the rain that we have had has not really been a thorough soaking rain uh, now we had in the last fall we had some really kind of gully washers, as my grandfather would have called them. But um, I think you need to be watching your watering very carefully and don't water until that soil is dry an inch deep. But when you water them, absolutely flood them. And uh, every now and then put a good little liquid fertilizer in there with them. Uh, make certain that your soil drains well. And um, that even even though the top died back at one point, that tree should come out, should grow up to make a very nice tree for you. Okay. 
Um, we are putting uh, one of those uh, a tractor, uh, what do you call it? The Gator bag? Bucket, the bucket? Yeah. Full of water. When we do water it. Well, that's not enough water. If I were watering with a bucket, it would take, uh, you know, a bucket on a tractor, it'd be, you know, two, three, four buckets full to really water it thoroughly. You just, oh. there's no such thing as too much water, but you can do it too often. So when you water it, you really, really need to water it very thoroughly. I'd be putting 50 gallons of water on when I watered it. 50 gallons. All right. Um do we leave both of them on, or do we wait till one um, overrides the other one? I would I would let them both grow up to about two feet tall, and at that point you can make the decision as which is the strongest one. I'd, I'd let them grow up to about two two feet, then I'd select one and cut the other one off. Okay, they are two feet already. Okay, well then then go out and. Pick the pick the strongest one. Uh, leave the stronger and uh, let the weaker go to the compost pile. Okay, well do. Thanks a lot for your help, Bob. It's always a pleasure. And then let me know how those trees do. I, you know, it, it's a really neat thing to have uh, to have taken seeds from the Alamo trees and planted them to grow your own esperanza. That is a fantastic idea. Some you uh, story you can tell your kids and grandkids. Right. Uh, do you have time for another question? Real quickly, yes. Okay. This is a, a mesquite tree that I have in the backyard. Okay. It has a lot of these um, climbing vines that look like something like a grape leaf. Okay. And it's coming like from down in the bottom. Um, do I need to pull out uh, more dirt from around the trunk? And this, this is a pinky weed. Okay. And it's starting to go up the trees. And does it have thorns or is it smooth? It's smooth, Bob, but okay. it, the leaves look like a climbing vine with uh, like something like a, a like a grape. Okay, and are the leaves a little bit, almost a little bit rubbery? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, and they don't have a very good smell to them. That really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the root flare is exposed. That vine is simply a weed that has taken root there, and you just need to work at pulling out as much of it as you can. Uh, it is probably, I don't even know, a com- well, a common name is air potato dioscoria, I think is its uh, botanical name, but it's it's just a nuisance, and um, it, it's unless it gets really really thick, it's not going to hurt anything. But it sure doesn't look very good. I just put on my gloves and pull out as much of it as I can whenever I see it. Okay, all right, that's it for us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's see. <laughs> it's just amazing to me. What is that? A tenth of a second from the time I hung up until that phone started ringing again. Uh, next up is Virginia. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have like about three questions. Okay. Uh, I want to dig up. I don't know what type of palm trees they have. Uh, they have the little fan-shaped leaves. Okay, probably a Mexican fan palm. Yeah, and they grow up about 12 feet tall, if that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. And uh, and some came up from my neighbor's yard in, in my yard, and I want to dig them up. If the roots come off completely will they still survive or that's it if if you do it in the middle of the summer you can pretty much cut every root off of them and you do not worry about getting a big root ball because with that well with all palms 
when you cut a root, it dies all the way back to the trunk of the tree. And that's why you sometimes oh, see okay. great big palm trees with no roots at all. Uh, yeah. You might as well just dig them up and bare root them. But you want to do it when the soil is hot so that uh, it will, um, you know, begin regrowing roots as, as soon as possible. Chances are you'd be fine to do it now. July and August are the time that the, we really tell the that the pros oh. do most of it. But, uh, yeah, you can dig. You can pretty much uh, butcher the roots up any way you want, and that palm tree will still live and grow. We have date trees. We have males and females, uh, just one. But mm-hmm. they have the plant pups on the side if you take that pup off would they survive or, or not not palm trees now sago palms uh, cycads which are not really true palms cycads yeah. you can take the uh, side growths off and you do the same thing you do it in the hottest part of the summer but a true yeah. palm like a mediterranean fan palm or a uh, pygmy date palm mm-hmm. or something like that no you're not usually successful in taking the side pieces off of those okay uh I have rose bushes that are still in the pot, and I was wondering if I could bury them deeper than they were at ground level than a shrub-top rose. No, they they still need to be with the root flare right up at the surface of the soil. Okay. Uh, Aloe vera. I have aloe vera plants, but I like to get them bigger. Uh I want to put them in like a bushel-sized container and give them everything to make them fat. Okay. and, and multiply, and I don't know what where to start with them. I don't have luck with aloe veras at all. Well, and be sure it is aloe vera. There, people people call a lot of different plants aloe veras, and there are probably fifty different aloes commonly grown. But be sure you're getting the true aloe vera plant. The thing that it likes is plenty of sun, all the way up to full outdoor sun, plenty of water. And regular fertilizer and a liquid like Hastro is just fine, but um, they will make you know big leaves. The leaves can weigh two and three pounds or more. But be sure that you are starting out with true aloe vera because a lot of what people call aloe vera really isn't. It's tiger aloe or one of the other aloes. It will take you about a year, year and a half to get a two-pound leaf on an aloe. Okay, what type of soil? I I, I give them plenty of water. Uh-huh. The sun probably could need a little more sun. But I give them plenty of water, and they just, like, melt. And so what type of soil should I use? Just any soil that drains well. Uh, okay. Remember, they're not cold-hardy, so you're probably going to have to grow them in a, in a big pot and be feeding them every couple of weeks with has to grow or something like that. Okay, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Diane, Beverly, Lex, and Betsy. Uh, Good morning, Diane. Hello, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. How about you today? Good, pretty good. Good. Um, I have two fairly simple, easy questions, I think. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) The first is, um, I just moved, and I have a fairly large back porch. um, The HOA is not letting us put any kind of fencing up, and my little chihuahua is used to going out in the doggy door. So I basically planted two pans of grass um, on the porch. So she goes out there. Mm -hmm. However, um, I also, they also, the HO is also not letting us put a gate to close off the porch stairs. However, they said that I could put planters there um, to cut off, you know, those stairs so she can't um, go down. So what I did was I found literally four 
bathroom trash cans that look like baskets. Okay. They're 11, 11 inches by 7 inches by 10 inches deep. Um, so they said that's fine to plant things in there, but I, I can't just have it with nothing in it. And if the stuff dies, I have to take it out and replant it. And stuff. So it has to look purpose, purposeful and nice. So what I'm looking for to plant in there is something that preferably would stay alive all year that's, that can turn sort of bushy so that she will not be inclined to jump over it, which I don't think she would anyway, but fairly bushy. And um, maybe something that I could prune to keep it from getting too big so that I don't have to keep replanting different stuff in there because it's sure. overgrown. Sure. Is there such a thing? Uh, there are. Um several thoughts here number one sounds like you've got a gestapo for a for a homeowners association yeah, and they yeah, a little bit <laughs> yeah they they overreach their authority many times but um I, planting in something like that from a box store is not going to be a good long-term solution because that plastic is not real high quality it's going to deteriorate and break down fairly quickly quickly um i'm i would either be looking and you're not going to find them in a rectangular shape but i would be looking for you know a black rubberized nursery container which is wide enough to block the instruments this this is or the steps this is uh one thing but they won't even let you put like a little child safety fence across there that's what i have a good friend that used to keep their dog from going off the porch and you know those little gate things that open and close that used to keep toddlers no the only thing we can do is we can put a a gate there but the association has to use their builders and it's going to cost like three hundred dollars ah that's so much so much crap uh any anyway um long term i think you would be happiest uh, probably with a terracotta planter, something that's literally lifetime quality, heavy okay. enough that it's not going to get blown away, turned over, anything like okay. that. Um, okay. But anyway, that's a decision to make. And I would go with a little bit bigger planter. It's just, it's hard to, the smaller the planter, the harder it is to keep whatever you put in it watered. Now, tell me about sunlight. How much How much sun does this area get? Okay, so it's on the side of the house, but... Um at you know afternoon sun um does hit it pretty okay. hard uh-huh uh, but being on the side it's not as bad as the front of the house okay but it does get pretty hard there is a great new variety of boxwood out there that is called baby gem g-e-m and okay. it uh it's dense it's thick it is very resilient it just doesn't get insect or disease problems uh it stops at about three feet in height so this is not something you're going to have to spend a lot of time manicuring or you know spend a lot of time taking care of but uh i I would very definitely get your your uh planter issue resolved and um uh and and then probably baby jim would be one of the things that i would be prone to choose another choice would be upright rosemary uh fragrant good to cook with not quite as good as a prostrate form but uh long-lived sun tolerant um very aromatic which in and of itself uh is you know probably gonna be a bit dog repellent 
there. Okay. But uh, those are going to be my two top two choices among the plants. I mean, there are lots of others out there, but I think those are the two that would fit the bill best. Okay, so on the rosemary, are you talking about like the actual herb form? Like yes. The yes, but there are two. There are two forms of rosemary. There's a spreading form that is called prostrate or trailing, and then there's the uh, more upright form. You very definitely want the upright form, and uh, it can grow as much as five or six feet tall. You're going to prune it once or twice a year, but it's just okay. it's a beautiful evergreen upright shrub that's going to be you know, pretty dense barrier, so um, uh, I think it would be a good choice. Okay, can I buy that um, already growing, or do I have to start it from seed? Oh, no, 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 no. Both these things you can buy, uh, depending on how much money you want to spend, you can buy it in a one-gallon container, probably up to a five-gallon container, and you're probably want to, going to want to start with a fair-sized plant just as a deterrent. Okay. All right, good. Great. Okay, and then my second question. Okay, let, um, me, let me back up just one okay. first and tell you one more thing. Um, if you love your pets as much as I love mine, and you probably do, you want to be absolutely certain that that dog doesn't escape and get out in the street or anything like that. I would love for you to call a company called Invisible Fence. Do you know about them? Um, I've heard of it. Okay. Uh, their products really, really, really work. Uh, and it's a professional thing. They install a wire that you can't see. Uh, and you don't even have to tell your blasted HOA about it, uh, but they would approve of it if you did. And your dog wears a collar, and when the dog approaches uh, the collar, or when the dog approaches the line that you say, you know, I, I want the dog to go no further than this, the dog stops. I recall oh. years ago delivering to a friend and longtime customer who had a black lab named Pepper that could bowl over three people coming up the driveway just with its enthusiasm. And I was yeah. delivering something to them one day, and Pepper comes flying down the driveway and puts on the brakes. And uh, I won't mention his owner by name, but I asked him, I said, where on earth did you send Pepper to school? And he said, he didn't go to school. We got invisible fence. And oh. uh, it, it, oh. it truly is a very, very good product to look at. Um, okay. It's it's they they don't give it away, but it's they even use it inside. I mean, people use it in their homes where they want to keep pets away from, say, a child's room or away from, uh, well, from just any any part of the house yeah. or any part of the yard that you want to keep the dog from uh, leaving and escaping. Now, um, I, I I have to ask them what the situation is if you ever lose power or something like that. But uh, okay. I'm going to have you know two layers of protection to be sure be sure my my doggies don't get uh, out into yeah. traffic. Okay, good, great. I'll check with them. All right. So the second question okay. is on the front of my house. I have a larger deck porch, mm -hmm. and I'm be putting a. a top on it but probably not for about a year okay so right now in the afternoon um the sun like it's it's incredibly hot mm -hmm. um but i do have really beautiful um planters that uh, that can attach to the porch railing uh-huh and i'd like to plant some flowers in there um but that afternoon sun i'm just so worried about um anything that would grow there and flower wise um I've got two small gazanias that I have out there, and even watering every day, they're not doing well. Yep. So I wanted to see if you could tell me something that will 
thrive with that sort of like. <laughs> okay, again, I'm a little concerned that the planters aren't big enough to really have an adequate amount of soil. But um, I'll tell you about two things. There is a uh, material you can mix with the soil, and it is called soil moist, M-O-I-S-T. It's a okay. white, uh, looks like kind of uh, grandma's old tapioca pudding. It's something called a hydrophilic colloid. It's not a toxic chemical of any sort. You put it in with the soil. When it gets wet, it swells up and holds water for a somewhat extended period of time. And this can really help out in the kind of situation that you're describing. Uh, to me, by far, the most durable plant to put there is probably going to be either portulaca or purslane, both of which are somewhat succulent, both of which are a little forgiving as if they get too dry, far more so than periwinkles or Dahlberg daisy or lots of the other choices would take the sun or zinnias. But uh, I'd look for some soil moist to mix into the soil. Then I'd probably be choosing either purslane or portulaca to plant. Okay, is that so the planters are long, those kind, they're like 24 inches by like 7 inches and mm-hmm. about inches deep and you know they hang over railings right so is that is that my two only choices in in flowers is there's nothing else that's a little more durable (laughs) those are your two most durable plants a very showy and a very excellent plants um vinca any sort of vinca periwinkle that's sometimes called botanically called cataranthus uh they will tolerate the sun they are low water users but they will not be happy with you if they ever get bone dry Um, There is a series of zinnias, low-growing spreading zinnia. They're called profusion, P-R-O-F-U-S-I-O-N, profusion. Two choices I would consider. One is just orange. The other is what they call fire profusion, which is a red-orange color. Um, don't, don't get the pinks. They fade out, uh, as do the yellows, but the orange or the fire profusion are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, there is a plant that's called Southern Bachelor Button or properly called Gomphrena, G-O-M-P-H-R-E-N-A. Uh, several different varieties. There's a very compact one, uh, with purple blooms. It'll be sold either under the name of Gnome, G-N-O-M-E, or Buddy, B-U-D-D-Y. And then there are some taller ones that aren't quite as pretty plants, but beautiful flowers. Uh, there's one called Fireworks. There's another one called Strawberry Fields. Uh, but your, your uh, Gumfrinas would be pretty out there. Those are all good things that are going to be showy. Now, a native plant, which would be pretty but not nearly as showy, would be Blackfoot Daisy. Blackfoot Daisy? Mm-hmm. Okay. And now for greenery, you could plant something called Asparagus Springeri. Commonly just called asparagus fern. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. Yep, that would do. That's just so many green, no no showy flowers, but uh, you could actually combine that with one of the others if you wanted uh, okay. you know, if you wanted a little greenery. If you go down to the Pearl down in that area, look upwards, you'll see some giant planters of uh, asparagus spring rye down there. Okay, and they do really good with that heat, the hot blazing sun the heat is not a problem the sun is not a problem diane forgetting to water them might be a problem so (laughs) yeah you you do your part and the plants will do theirs great 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 all right well you've helped me immensely today i really appreciate it it's my pleasure you have a great weekend and uh, i'm sure we'll talk again all right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Uh, Beverly, Lex, Betsy, and Tana, and Beverly's first. Good morning, Beverly. 
Good morning. Good morning. What I'm calling you about, I thought that this these worms would disappear, but for three weeks we've been having them. And I think they're army worms because they're gray and black dripping all over the place. Okay. And and uh, should we uh, spray it with spinosad or something? Well, if you want to kill them, spinosad is a very good thing. Are they on the sides of your house, on your patio? No. Where are they? Well, they kind of come down, too, but mostly in the pecan trees. Yeah. They're in the pecan trees. Well. And uh, we see clunks of them that comes and sticks to the uh, a tree kind of at nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. They're a nuisance, and they're going to, you know, eat some leaves. Uh, they, you know, they're the kind of thing that you're paper wasps and things would work at controlling but if you've got lots of them out there uh i would i would think about spraying with spinosad at least the lower portions now i would love for you next year to make a note on your calendar to put out something called trichogramma they're tiny little almost invisible wasp that would have destroyed the eggs of these caterpillars before they hatched out but now that they're hatched and out you're just going to have to deal with them um, do they seem to be eating much of the foliage on your pecan trees? Yeah, yeah, we do see them eating a lot of the leaves, uh-huh. And, and do they... crawling on the ground. Yeah, well, the ones on the ground, uh, your shoe will take care of. Um, yeah, that's... that's do, they, do they make a web in the tree around them? No. Okay. No. Yeah, if you're seeing big masses of them, I probably would spray them with spinosad to get rid of them. But um, or you could even mix vinegar and orange oil. No, I'm sorry, uh, water and orange oil together and spray that on. What just water and orange oil would probably kill them. But yeah, I'm I'm going to reduce their numbers if that's happening in my yard. Okay, and let's see the next thing. Uh, I want to put nematodes out, and my husband usually uses the one they uh, the little bottle that you. Screw on to the hose. Right. Is that all right to do that? Yes, it is. You just uh, you need to look if there is a an uptake tube. I don't. I'm not sure exactly which brand that is, uh, but be sure there's not a filter or something on that would keep them from being you know sucked up and sprayed out. That's the way that uh, you know most of these hose in sprayers work, and you don't want a filter on there. You want it to just be taking the liquid up out of the jar and spraying it out. But that's the generally the best way if you have a big area. Now, a small area, you can just put them in a watering can and put them around. But if you're really doing your yard, if you try and do fleas and things like that, uh, that little sprayer on the end of the hose is the best way to go. Okay, and what would you recommend for fleas for the dogs? I give them the pills, but I still see them scratching. Well, Dr. Kirby is telling me about uh, uh, the I, – I have always used Comfortis, but like you, it doesn't seem to be working as well. And he switched me to a product called NexGuard, N-E-X-G-U-A-R-D. Uh, he's just walking in the into the producer's room over there as we speak. So uh, um, I would ask your vet, but uh, my vet is recommending NexGuard as long as okay. the dog doesn't have a history of seizures. Uh, that may be uh, something your vet will, will put your dog on. Well, yeah, I think I'm going to look into that then. Good. Okay, and I thank you for all your information. It's always a pleasure, Beverly. You have a wonderful weekend, and I will get on to Lex. Good morning, Lex. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm very well, sir. How about you this Father's Day? Oh, um, a wonderful, relaxing day. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it ought to be. Uh, i got a couple questions, and first one is i got some 
really big oak trees. Uh-huh. And a couple of them have got, looks like somebody whitewashed it with rust on the bark. Okay. Have you ever seen that? There are many, yeah, many different things can cause that. Uh, It can be a type of lichen. Uh, Is it sticky or liquidy, or is it dry? It's dry. Okay. Uh, It's absolutely nothing to worry about. Sometimes you'll get a little fungus that's not really affecting the tree, but it it gradually uh, decomposes the bark as the tree pushes the bark outward, making new bark underneath. Uh, but it's, it's, in both cases, totally harmless to the tree. As long as the new growth looks good on the tree, you're in great shape. I, in any event, always recommend looking at the base of the tree to be sure the root flare is exposed. But uh, uh, this is a normal thing in hot, dry weather and not anything to be concerned about. Okay, as far as the root flare, I've got a great Pyrenees, and she loves digging next to it. So it's got a <laughs> wonderful root flare. I mean, it's like you, oh man, <laughs> wonderful dogs. The uh, place I buy my dog food up in Bernie Redcrest Pet Shop, uh, they've always got at least a couple of great Pyrenees in there, and they are just the biggest oafs in the world and wonderful dogs. <laughs> I, I, I can I can visualize uh, this one taking care of your tree for you. Yes, sir. She does a wonderful job. And then she <laughs> lies down in the nice cool dirt once she's done the exposure, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Also, I've got uh, some cedar trees. They're big. They've got like, uh, I've got one that's got a foot and a half, and another one's almost two foot circumference on the mm-hmm. base. Yeah. Diameter or circumference? Uh, diameter. Oh, I mean, okay. Yeah. yeah that's this. And uh, yeah, there's a big difference in that. Um, I got big limbs that are breaking off of this. Tree. One of them, seven of them, broke off in the past year. Mm-hmm. It's like they just just break and fall off. And I mean, it's every limb on this tree is doing it. And yep. I've got several other trees that are doing smaller ones, but it's only been doing it the past two years. And one half of that is that it is a very old, very mature, very ancient tree that's naturally going to have a lot of dead wood in it. The second thing is that uh, cedar hates excessive moisture uh that's why you know when people go in and build houses and put in a yard and start watering the cedar typically dies the past two years have alternated in typical texas fashion between drought and flood and we have had a lot more rain than an old mature cedar likes now these young second growth cedars they love it they're putting on four feet of growth a year but your big old mature stately cedars uh they're not liking all the moisture we have and uh, i certainly would encourage you not to do any additional watering around them but a lot of what you're seeing is just age plus storms plus too much water Okay, yeah, because I don't. Ever, I've never watered these because yeah. they're out in the outside and big, you know. And one of them's over my carport, and every limb falls on his carport. Oh, I, yeah, and that sometimes it you may have to get an arborist out there to at least take the dead wood out of it. But when you get an ash juniper, as we call cedar, up to that size, uh, it's kind of like an old hackberry tree. It's going to get to a point that it just starts dropping limbs, and it's not anything that you have done or have not done, and there's not a lot you can do about it except uh, don't pitch your tent underneath it for sure. Yes. Now, these here, the reason why it concerns me is they're all green, the ones that are breaking off. Mm-hmm. They, they have growth on them and stuff, and that's what concerns me. Well, 
and think about the weight. Think about, you know, yeah. how much that foliage weighs. Now you wet that down with a good little bit of rain because uh, this tree is designed for those leaves, needles, whatever you want to call them, to collect the first half inch of water that falls. And all of a sudden that limb weighs three times as much as it does dry. And then you put a little 40 mile an hour gust of wind on there and voila, you know, here it comes. Yes, sir. And so that, well, I sure do appreciate it. And you have a wonderful Father's Day. Hey, you do the same, Lex. Always good to talk to you, sir. Thank you so much. You too, sir. Thank uh-huh. you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, yeah, I think we're about right to finish up the show with uh, Betsy. Good morning, Betsy. Good morning. Good morning. So I have a quick question for you. Um, my husband and I live here in San Antonio, and we have... Um, I guess maybe about a quarter of an acre in town, and we have St. Augustine uh, as our grass. But we're having a problem with sprawling horseweed. It's everywhere, and we can't seem to get rid of it. Uh, horse herb, the little one with the yellow flowers? Yes, that's okay. it. And um, this year is especially bad, right? Yes, sir. Well, what happened this year? Horse herb is a you know is a really tough survivor of a plant it'll take uh you know the hottest brightest sun in the world it'll tolerate mm-hmm. a lot of drought it'll take very cold temperatures this That's year <laughs> yeah this year it got such a head start because it started growing two months before your saint augustine started growing right yeah. and the i guess the bad news of it is that there's not anything you can spray on that'll kill it uh, without hurting your saint augustine um, you know, a quarter of an acre is a lot of exercise when it comes to pulling it up. Um, yeah. I will tell you this, that healthy St. Augustine will choke it out. Uh, that okay. means lots of water. It means proper water. It means watering once a week, but putting out an inch and a half of water at a time. Uh, you may want to increase your fertilizing, good organic fertilizer, about four times a year. And okay. regular mowing, your St. Augustine will choke that horse herb out. And if you don't okay. like it, you call it straggler daisy. If you like it, you call it horse herb. <laughs> but um, St. Augustine is still the stronger grass. But if you let right. your St. Augustine get stressed, if you don't water it thoroughly enough, if you let it get mm-hmm. short on nutrition, uh, horse herb will dominate. But okay. uh, my yard where I live, I couldn't, uh, I'd, I'd exhaust my well trying to maintain a lot of St. Augustine. Sure. So I tolerate the horse herb, and my yard's a combination of Bermuda and horse herb, sometimes more of one, sometimes more of the other. But mm-hmm. uh, it's not hurting your St. Augustine. It's not choking your St. Augustine out. And if you are able to do a good job of maintaining your St. Augustine, it will win. But okay. when we have I a year like we... It. I'm sorry. Uh huh. There, there's less of it in the, in like you said, the thicker parts of the St. Augustine. It's mostly on the edges of the yard where it right. tries to creep in. But where it's nice and thick, we have a lot of oak trees for shade cover. Uh huh. Um, where it's nice and thick, the St. Augustine, um, the horse herb is a lot less. So right. it's sort of on the outskirts. But we, we tried, like you said, using a spray last year right before it got hot and we, you know, kind of singed the grass in some spots so we learned our lesson there but it's good to know there's not anything we should spray on it no there's absolutely nothing you can spray on it if you want to do one additional thing as much of the yard as you can this fall when it cools off october november um, get a good 
uh, compost like uh, New Earth's uh, certified organic manure compost. You can get it from Stone and Soil. You can get it from New Earth. You can, you know, get it from whomever. Well, what area are you in? Um, we're by the medical center. Okay, okay. Um, I can see the first four numbers of your phone number, and I see that 830 area code. So, yes, sir, uh, I'm from Fredericksburg, okay. so I've had my, this, this phone number for years. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. No, uh, I don't want to pay your water bill. But, uh, you know, if and again, don't make the mistake some people do of watering lightly three or four times a week. Once a week is plenty of water, but you may be running every zone on your sprinkler system for an hour to hour and a half to get adequate water out. But uh, the only other, you know, like I say, little compost spring and or fall is going to make your St. Augustine even stronger. But uh, it'll win. You know, it'll win, and uh, there's not really anything you can or should be doing other than mowing. Do you recommend a certain amount of fertilizer? I mean, should we cover the roots adequately in, in fertilizer for the St. Augustine? Now, do you mean compost or fertilizer? Or, yes, sir. I guess the compost. Compost, I would go between a quarter of an inch and half an inch. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, and happy Father's Day. Oh, well, Appreciate thank you. Thank you so much, and... Uh, Enjoy that beautiful St. Augustine lawn, and you just smile when everybody else tells you about the chiggers that they have in their Bermuda grass lawn. And (laughs) St. Augustine, you know, other than being, you know, a, it's not even that thirsty. It takes just as much water to maintain Bermuda. It's just a problem with St. Augustine is that uh, uh, if you stop watering it, it doesn't go dormant; it dies. So. Right. Um, you may want to think about creating some ground cover areas in those shadier areas eventually where you don't yeah. have as thick. We you... actually have planted some Asiatic jasmine, yeah. um, I guess about three years ago underneath the oak trees in some parts where it's really shady yeah. and it's finally taken off this year. We've got a lot of the crawlers. First year it sleeps, second year it creeps and the third year it leaps. Uh, Betsy, yeah, you're, 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 you're doing it right. You have a great weekend and I sure appreciate you the too. call. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye.